Let's begin by praying together. Would you pray with me? Father, would you please convict us of our sins and enlighten our minds and capture our hearts as we study Daniel's prayer. Please help us learn how to, as a group, confess our sins. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I'm going to be uh, beginning with a controversial topic that connects directly to Daniel's prayer that we just heard Pastor Ken read to us from Daniel 9. And here's the question. Should white people today repent for the ethnic partiality that white people committed in past generations? I think I have all your attention. All right. So some Christians today argue that if you are a white person, you are therefore guilty to some degree for the sins that white people committed in past generations. So if you're white, you may think that the American slave trade was wicked. You may think that the segregation of Jim Crow policies was unjust. You may not personally have prejudices against black people. You may love black people. You may have adopted black children. Uh, You may not personally discriminate against black people in any way, and you may not personally think that you're superior in any way to black people. Yet because you have white skin, and because you benefit from so-called white privilege, you are complicit to some degree in racism and therefore must repent. In other words, the argument goes, all people, all white people are corporately guilty for their ancestors' ethnic partiality and should corporately repent of those sins. One of the primary arguments for this view is that several passages in the Bible portray ancestral sin and guilt together with corporate repentance for those sins, even if an individual may be himself personally innocent of those sins. And one of those passages is our sermon text, Daniel 9, 1 through 19. So here's what some people argue that Daniel 9 teaches. Daniel is personally innocent of all these sins that his ancestors committed, yet Daniel includes himself as he corporately confesses the sins of God's people. So some people would then conclude Daniel's an example for white Christians today in this respect. An individual white Christian today may be personally innocent of ethnic partiality, yet such a white Christian should include himself or herself while corporately confessing the sin of ethnic partiality that other white people committed in past generations. You with me? You following the argument? Okay. So what do we make of that argument? Well, I plan to return to this a little bit later in the sermon. First, we need to study study Daniel's prayer. So I'd like to preach to you from Daniel 9, 1 through 19 on this subject. How should God's people as a group confess sin? I'll proceed in three parts, see if I can figure out how this thing works. Did did I do that? Someone else is doing it. I did that. Okay. Uh, Part one, how does Daniel model a way for God's people as a group to confess sin? Part two, should we corporately repent for sins that people committed in past generations and we'll use as a test case, should white people today repent for the ethnic partiality that white people committed in past generations? And then finally, part three, 
why does it matter that we specify how God's people should and should not corporately repent? That's where we're going. Let's start with part one. How does Daniel model a way for God's people as a group to confess sin? Daniel's prayer that we just read, and we'll look through again, models at least five ways that God's people should pray when we as a group have sinned against God. Here's the first. Pray in response to the word of God. So you can see in Daniel 9 verse 1, the setting for this prayer. Uh, In 605 BC, the Babylonians or the Chaldeans destroyed Jerusalem and they deported many Israelites to Babylon. And those, those exiles included Daniel. He was probably about 15 years old when he was deported to Babylon. And now when he's writing, it's about 70 years later. So he's about 85 years old. He's still in Babylon. And his prayer is specifically verses 4 through 19. So it's really significant to ask, why did he pray this? What's the catalyst for him praying this prayer? What prompts him to pray as he does? Look at verses 2 through 4. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived where? In the books. What does that refer to? Let's keep reading. In the books, the number of years that according to, here it is, the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. He's reading the Bible, what he had of it. He's reading the book of Jeremiah. So he, read, he reads what must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So after he's, he has a Bible study in Jeremiah, then, verse 3, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. So the catalyst for his prayer is not that he's embarrassed that God's people are guilty of sins that his ungodly culture despises. The catalyst for his prayer is the precious and pure and piercing word of God. What prompts him to pray this way is that he's studying the Bible, specifically Jeremiah chapter 25 and 29. I know that because those are the only two passages that mention 70 years, and he refers to 70 years. So let me show you those passages. First one is Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12. This whole land, the land of Jerusalem, shall become a ruin and a waste And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. That's the first passage. The second in Jeremiah that mentions 70 years is Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in chapter 29. And in in that passage, Jeremiah is instructing the exiles in Babylon to settle down in Babylon, build your homes, plant gardens, seek the welfare of the city. Uh, False prophets were predicting that Israelites would be in Babylon for just a little period of time, just a little bit. But Jeremiah says, no, it's going to be 70 years. So here's what he writes. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
And I want to pause there and preach another sermon on not taking the Bible out of context. I'm going to keep reading. (laughs) Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. That's a promise to God's people exiled in Babylon. So as a result of studying these passages in Jeremiah, Daniel starts to do some calculating. When did I get exiled here? Okay, 70 years. He he realizes the 70 years is, is about up. But he is dismayed that, according to Daniel 9, 2, if you have your text open, he's, a, he's, a, he's dismayed that the desolations of Jerusalem might not end. The desolations of Jerusalem is their exile from Jerusalem. And he's afraid that that might not end because Israel is egregiously, continually sinning against God. So Daniel wisely concludes that now was the time to seek the Lord with all his heart, like this passage in Jeremiah 29 says. And he's praying in line with several other Old Testament passages. And Daniel would have been very familiar with these other passages. The sermon's already going to be long enough, so I'm just going to give you the, the scripture references. One's in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 30, 1 Kings 8, all similar passages that speak about seeking the Lord desperately with all your heart in these situations. So in Daniel 9, here's, I think, the pattern for us when we want to pray corporately, confess our sins corporately. The pattern is this. Pray in response to the word of God. Daniel does what King David does after God makes glorious promises to King David. We call this the Davidic covenant, the promise to David. So David responds to God's promises by praying, Now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And here's, here's the best part. And do as you have spoken. The NIV translates that, Do as you promised. That summarizes Daniel's prayer. Do as you promised. And that is how we should pray. Put your finger on specific promises from the Lord and pray, Lord, do as you promised. In particular, that's what we should do when we as a people have sinned. Pray in response to the word of God. Claim God's promises and acknowledge that you as a group have not followed God's words. That's the first way that Daniel's a model for us. Here's a second way. Confess your sins as the people of God. This is the obvious one. Confess your sins as the people of God. This is the burden of the whole prayer, uh, and I'd like to reread it for you, and as I do it, I'm going to highlight how Daniel is confessing sins, not primarily as an individual, but on behalf of God's people as a group. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, so here's the prayer. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings our princes and our fathers 
and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as, it is, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they've committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Sorry. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem as it's written in the law of Moses. All this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, We have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So Daniel is confessing specific sins that the old covenant people of God committed. In verse 5, we've turned aside from your commandments and rules. Verse 6, we've not listened to the servants, the prophets. Verse 7, we've committed treachery against you. Verse 9, we've rebelled against the Lord. Verse 10, we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. Verse 14, we've not obeyed his voice. Verse 15, we've done wickedly. On and on and on. He's praying, we as a group have sinned. We, we today, should pray that way because we're sinners who need God's mercy. That was the whole premise of all the songs we were singing. We're praising the Lord because we're a bunch of sinners that God saved. And it's glorious that God has done that. So we who are Christ followers today are part of not the old covenant, people of God. 
We're part of the new covenant people of God. So what might corporate prayer look like for the new covenant people of God? Well, prayers of confession have been a common feature in Protestant worship meetings. And I'm going to read, I'll pray it, the most famous prayer of confession that I know of in the English language. It's from Thomas Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer. It's short. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought not to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore thou those who are penitent according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord, and grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. That's a fitting way to confess your sins as a people of God. And that's the second way that Daniel's prayer is a model for us. Confess your sins as a people of God. Here's the third way. As you're confessing your sins corporately, Plead for God's mercy. So we get God's mercy when he doesn't punish us the way we deserve. Instead of getting God's justice, we get his undeserved kindness. God's justice is what we deserve. God's kindness is what we don't deserve. And when we, as God's people, have sinned, we plead not for God's justice, but for God's mercy. And you can see this in verses 3, 9, 17, 18 or he's pleading for mercy, to God belongs mercy. Because of your great mercy, that's why he's praying this way. And just remember, what would it look like for God to answer Daniel's prayer? What would it look like for him to be merciful to Daniel and, and the rest of God's people? It would be that God would mercifully return Israelites from exile, from Babylon back to Jerusalem. That would be God's undeserved kindness. Here's a fourth way that Daniel models how to pray corporately, praise God for his excellencies. So as we're confessing our sins, we should praise God for his excellencies. So verse 4, Daniel praises God for his greatness, his awesomeness. He repeatedly calls God Lord. In your English Bibles, one is Lord, uh, capital L-O-R-D, and then one is all caps, L-O-R-D. So the one that's capital L, lowercase O-R-D, that's the Hebrew word Adonai. The all caps is Yahweh. So the Adonai, or, or uh, keep wanting to say Lord, that's not helping you. Uh, Adonai, uh, the Lord with the lowercase O-R-D, that's saying that God's the supreme king. You're praising God for being the supreme king every time you say that. And the Lord with all caps, Yahweh, you're praising God for his covenant loyalty. That's his name. He's the, the covenant, covenant-keeping God. He's faithful. He always keeps his word. And then you can praise God for attributes. So in verses 7 and 14 and 16, Daniel praises God for his righteousness. So you praise God that everything he does is right. He is, by definition, right. And you can praise God for his mercy and forgiveness, as Daniel does in verses 9 and 18. God is compassionate and forgiving. So as you're praying, corporately, exult in who God is. 
Exult in what he has already done for you. And finally, number five, ask the Lord to act for his own sake. So God does what he does for his own glory. So ask God to be merciful to God's people for the sake of God, for the sake of God's reputation. So you can see this in verses 15 to 18. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, he's acting for the sake of his name, as at this day we've sinned, we've done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city of Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that's called by your name. For we don't present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Hear, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So as you pray, ask the Lord to act for his own sake. Those are five ways, at least, that Daniel's prayer models how God's people today should corporately confess sins before the Lord. Now let's move to part two. Should we corporately repent for sins that people committed in past generations? Now I want to Before I dive in here, I want to start with an important qualification. I chose this topic as a test case because I think it would serve Christians today well to be clear about this controversial issue in our culture. As we address this issue, it's important to remember that ethnic partiality of any kind is a wicked sin against God. And we should repent of that. If there's any little bit of it, we should repent of that don't want to condone any kind of ethnic partiality at all. So please remember that ethnic partiality is a sin for which Jesus died. Don't construe anything I'm saying to support or downplay ethnic partiality. Absolutely not. If you want to uh, read more what I think about that, there's an article I wrote a few years ago called What the Bible Teaches About Ethnic Harmony. You just Google that, you'll find it. So now regarding this test case, the resource that has most helped me is a, an article available online by Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer. Here's the title. Do Whites Need Corporate Repentance for Historical Racial Sins? So I, in what follows, I'm repackaging some of their work in my own words, and I, I commend their article to you. And those guys, uh, Shenvey and Sawyer, first explain that there are at least three main arguments for white corporate guilt and repentance. So I'd like to summarize those arguments. I've already shared with you the first one, which is this. Several passages in the Bible, including Daniel 9, portray ancestral sin and guilt together with corporate repentance for those sins, even if an individual may be personally innocent of those particular sins. So Daniel, here's how the argument goes. Daniel is personally innocent of these sins that his ancestors committed, Yet, Daniel includes himself as he's corporately confessing the sins of God's people. So like Daniel, 
we should also, if, if, we are, if we are personally innocent of those sins, we should corporately confess those sins and, and, and personally confess them today. Uh, a white Christian today should include himself as he corporately confesses the sins of ethnic partiality that others committed in past generations. That's our argument number one. Number two, the past sins of white people like slavery, lynching, Jim Crow, sins for which Jesus died, are imputed to white people today. So this is imputation. This is the same idea of corporate solidarity we affirm regarding Adam's sin and Christ's righteousness. So Adam's original sin is imputed to all humans. Christ's righteousness is imputed to believers. That is, all humans are guilty for Adam's sin, which we did not personally commit. And believers are righteous because of Christ's life and death, even though we're not personally perfectly righteous. Similarly, the argument goes, white people today are guilty for the ethnic partiality of white people in the past, even if white people today are not personally guilty of ethnic partiality. That's argument two. Here's argument three. White people today have unearned advantages, called white privilege, from historic injustices, which make them complicit in those injustices. So even if white people are not personally guilty of ethnic partiality today, their unearned advantages make them complicit in past sin. So those are three arguments for one side. And I'm going to argue, here's my thesis, that the answer to the two questions I pose is no. So no, we should not corporately repent for sins that people committed in past generations. No, specifically, white people today should not repent for the ethnic partiality that white people committed in past generations. And I'm going to give you six reasons. Reason number one. Daniel repented of his own sins in his prayer. So some will argue that Daniel was innocent of any of the sins that he mentions in his prayer. So they say he's, he's using the first person plural, we, us, we, us, because he identified with the sinful Israelites, even though he, didn't, he wasn't guilty in any way. I didn't read verse 20, though. We stopped at verse 19. In verse 20, Daniel says, while I was speaking and praying, what are the next three words? Confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. So that phrase, confessing my sin, means that in his prayer, Daniel was confessing his personal sins as an individual. So Daniel is not an innocent, sinless man who is merely identifying with sinful Israelites. He's a sinful Israelite himself. He includes himself in the prayer. That's reason number one. Reason number two, Daniel corporately repented of his people's ongoing sins. So the sins that Daniel is corporately repenting of were happening at the time he was praying. They were not sins exclusive to his ancestors and past generations. These sins were ongoing up to the moment he was praying. You can see this in verse 5, 6, 16. Reason 3. Daniel responded to specific promises God made to his old covenant people. I'm going to take a little bit longer with this one. This is important. So Daniel was praying in response to specific promises that God made to his old covenant people in Scripture. We saw that in Jeremiah 25 and 29. That's why Daniel confessed the sins of God's old covenant people. He prayed 
as a leader who represented God's old covenant people. So it's Daniel the prophet praying on behalf of God's old covenant people. God's old covenant people are not an arbitrary group of people. They're an actual covenant people. But when you use the term white people today, that's an arbitrary group. White people are not a covenant people. That's like referring to all peoples with dimples in their cheeks when they smile, or to all French-speaking people, or all six-feet-tall people. Those are arbitrary groups of people. It's not a covenant people. They don't have a covenant head. The term white people also refers to race. But the category of race does not come from the Bible. It's a social construct. That's why, if you noticed, I've not been using the term race and racism. I've been saying ethnicity and ethnic partiality. So race is primarily a physical or biological thing. Ethnicity is primarily cultural. So race focuses on superficial characteristics like skin color and hair texture. Ethnicity includes physical characteristics like those, but it also focuses on cultural characteristics like language, geopolitics, cultural customs. That's why our black brother, Vodi Bakum, says this, race is arbitrary. Racial classifications are not real classifications. There is but one race. There's virtually no genetic difference between a black man and a white man. We have the same original parents. We are of multiple ethnicities, but one race. The racial distinctions between us are arbitrary distinctions based on certain features we have, but not on real differences. So when we use the term race according to contemporary usage, I think we're undermining the Bible's teaching that we share one race, the human race. We are all related as humans. Adam and Eve are our parents. Same bloodline. We all have the same common ancestor. Acts 17.26 says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So if white people aren't a covenant people, is there a covenant people today? Yeah, the, the name for this covenant people is the church. The church is God's new covenant people. And the church consists of Jews and Gentiles, people from many ethnicities, not just one ethnicity. And the church, when the church is guilty of sinning, should corporately repent for our sins against God, but it's wrong to restrict that corporate repentance to only a subset of the group. So when God's new covenant people corporately repent, we all repent together as a group. As Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer explain, in the context I'm quoting, in the context of corporate confession, there is only corresponding guilt and accountability of sin for any specific individual to the extent that the specific individual actually sinned. That's good. So all humans are guilty because of Adam's sin, because Adam is the covenant head of the human race. Believers are righteous because of Christ's life and death, because Christ is the covenant head of believers. But other arbitrary groups of people, like white people or redheads or Chinese speakers or six-foot-tall peoples, they don't have a covenant head. That's, that's reason number three. Daniel responded to specific promises God made to his old covenant people. Here's reason four. The Bible explicitly says that guilt does not transfer from parent to child. 
Listen to two scripture passages. First is Deuteronomy 24:16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. And here's Ezekiel 18, verses 17 to 20. He, the son, shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So the Bible explicitly says guilt does not transfer from parent to child. So let's argue from the greater to the lesser. An argument from the greater to the lesser is like this. If, if, I, can, uh, if I can pick up a 250-pound man, then I can pick up this little clicker. You with me? How the argument works? Greater to the lesser. If guilt doesn't transfer from parent to child, how much more does guilt not transfer from people of past generations, unrelated to you, to you now? Because of a superficial commonality, like the, the shade of your skin. Argument from the greater to the lesser. That's why this is important, that guilt does not transfer from parent to child. Now, what I'm arguing here doesn't contradict Numbers 14, 18, which says that the Lord visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Somebody say, oh, well, that teaches that it, it does transfer. No, uh, that's not saying that God holds children accountable for their father's sins. It's merely saying that children often repeat the sins of their fathers. So when parents are guilty of anger or drunkenness, it's more likely that their children will repeat those sins of anger or drunkenness. But even when that's the case, God still holds the children accountable for their own sins. That's reason number four. Guilt doesn't transfer from parent to child. Here's reason number five. It is impossible to repent for sins that someone else has committed. What does repent mean? So to, to repent of a sin means to turn away from a sin and to turn to God. It's a change of mind that results in a change of life. It's impossible to do that for a sin you didn't commit. You can't turn away from a sin that you haven't committed and that you already abominate. You can't repent of your own, say it this way, you can repent of your own ethnic partiality if you have it, but you can't repent of someone else's ethnic partiality, especially someone who's been dead for years and years and years. The sins of your ancestors are not imputed to you. It's impossible for you to repent on their behalf. You must repent of your own sins. If you are guilty of ethnic partiality today and you've sinned by having prejudice in your heart, against someone else, a fellow image bearer, merely because of their difference in how they look, that's wicked, and you need to repent. Uh, let's suppose, though, that you have a, a white ancestor who lived 200 years ago and was guilty of severe ethnic partiality, like kidnapping people from Africa and enslaving them as personal property, something like that. Well, both you and your ancestor are guilty of ethnic partiality and should repent. But we shouldn't treat 
those sins of ethnic partiality as identical. They're similar in quality, but different in severity. Let me give you three examples of this for other sins. There's a difference between hating someone in your heart versus murdering someone, right? When you repent, you turn from that hatred in your heart. You don't repent of physically murdering. Uh, and, And further, you don't repent of the murders that people committed in past generations. Here's another example. There's a difference between lusting for a moment in your heart versus repeatedly committing physical adultery. Both are wicked, and Jesus died for both sins. But when you repent, you turn from the lust in your heart. You don't repent of committing physical adultery. And further, you don't repent from the physical adultery that other people committed in past generations. Here's a third example. There's a difference between speaking unkindly to your spouse versus routinely physically assaulting your spouse. Those are different kinds of sins. When you repent, you turn from speaking unkindly. You don't repent of serial domestic abuse. And further, you don't repent from the domestic abuse that people committed in past generations. So I am not intending to minimize any sin. All sin is wicked. But not not all sins are identical. Not all sins are equally severe. Some sins are worse than others. And most important for, for this point here is we should repent of sins we've actually committed, not of sins that other people committed generations ago. Final reason, number six, privilege does not automatically make a person guilty. So white privilege is a relatively recent term that refers to a set of unearned advantages that whites experience relative to non-whites by virtue of their skin color. And I'm arguing that 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 kind of privilege does not automatically make you guilty. And my argument here is to take Jesus as an ethnic Israelite in the first century as, as, as a test case here. Let me quote Neil Shendi and Pat Sawyer. They say, Jesus himself was a man living in a highly patriarchal context where he experienced many unearned advantages, unearned advantages due to his gender. Yet he didn't sin. He was in no sense complicit in sin, and he didn't attempt to directly dismantle the systems and structures that provided him with male privilege. Therefore, the experience of privilege, even privilege which results from injustice, cannot entail guilt or the need for repentance. Likewise, if we, they say, if we argue that Ezra, Daniel, and Nehemiah, who all pray these sorts of prayers, if we argue that they were actually guilty of sin because of their corporate membership in Israel, would we contend that Jesus was actually guilty of sin merely because of his corporate membership in Israel? Follow that logic. If Daniel was innocent and had to repent, then wouldn't Jesus have had to also repent because he was part of Israel? Perish the thought that Jesus repented of anything. So I think those arguments show that privilege, even if it results from past injustice does not automatically make a person guilty. So you should not feel guilty because you enjoy privileges that others don't. For example, my four daughters who are sitting back there in the nosebleed section, uh, they enjoy many unearned privileges that other children don't. They have a mom and a dad who love each other, are faithful to each other, and love them. Should we feel guilty of that? Absolutely not. That is a blessing from the Lord. Thank God for that. We want more of that. That's a blessing. 
We don't need to feel guilty because of such a privilege. Uh, privilege is a blessing. And if we had more time, we could talk about the issue of reparations, but I'm focusing here specifically on whether corporate repentance is necessary. So that's my, my laser focus. So that, that's why I'm, I'm not going to veer off there at this point. So those are six reasons that I believe we should not corporately repent for sins that people committed in past generations. Specifically, white people today should not repent for the ethnic partiality that white people committed in past generations. And someone, maybe one of you, might be thinking right now, you're splitting theological hairs and missing the point, and worse, you're excusing present-day racism. So I'd like to address in part three, why does it matter that we specify how God's people should and should not corporately repent? Why? Why even talk about it like this? For at least three reasons. Reason number one, bad theology hurts people. So it is important to distinguish between repenting, repudiating, and lamenting. Theologian J.I. Packer, who's with the Lord now, often said bad theology hurts people. That's true. Theology matters. And if we feel a false guilt that we think we must repent of, what do we do with that? If you feel a false guilt merely because of the shade of your skin, what do you do with that? How can you repent of that? That false guilt will weigh on you and you won't be able to get rid of it apart from renouncing it as false guilt. So good theology helps us. In this case, it's important to distinguish between repenting, repudiating, and lamenting. Repent means turn away from your sins and to God. We should repent of our own sins. We should not repent of the sins of others. Repudiate means refuse to accept or be associated with. We should repudiate our own sins as well as the sins of others. Lament means to mourn, to express deep, deep grief about. And we should lament our own sins and the sins of others. So if we're guilty of ethnic partiality of any kind, we should repent of that. But what about the horrific ethnic partiality that people committed in past generations? We can't repent of that, but we should repudiate it and we should lament it. So getting those categories right matters because bad theology hurts people. Second, the church must maintain the ethnic harmony that Christ already created. Ephesians 4 says that we must be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And we don't create this unity. Someone else already created it. We maintain this unity. We preserve it. Christ created it. You can read about it in Ephesians 2 and 3. So this, the Jew-Gentile tension that you read about in the New Testament, especially in Ephesians and in Romans, is far deeper, far more divisive than the black-white uh, tension that we feel in America. And Christ broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Christ created one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. And he reconciled us both to God in one body 
through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Our identity in Christ is more significant than any other self-defining characteristic. The church is a place for people of all ethnicities. We are in Christ's people. We have so much in common, a lot of sin in common, and a lot of mercy in common. And the church must maintain the ethnic harmony that Christ has already created. So wrong thinking about corporate repentance creates ethnic disharmony. It doesn't help. Third reason, and finally, the church must corporately repent of our own actual sins. We have enough actual sins to worry about (laughs) to add false guilt to our burden. You shouldn't feel guilty because of the color of your skin. You should not feel guilty because you have a light skin or a dark skin or whatever shade. If you feel guilty because of the shade of your skin, that's false guilt. It's false guilt. There's enough for you to feel, a guilt, to feel guilty about without adding false guilt on top of actual guilt. And you have plenty of actual guilt to, to, to feel, uh, to, to feel guilty about. This is where I'm tempted to preach another sermon and give you more examples. Uh, you shouldn't conclude from this sermon that there are no reasons for you to feel guilty. So don't respond with a self-righteous attitude. All of us are sinners All of us seek glory for ourselves. We put ourselves in the place of God and we trust our own senses, our own experience, our own reasoning, and we think we know better than God does. We disregard God and we disbelieve God and disobey God. We we belittle God because we want the glory. We're, We're glory thieves. We steal glory that belongs to God. So we all need to repent. We are all sinners who need to repent regularly. That's why corporate repentance is fitting for God's people because God's people are repenting sinners. We need God's mercy. We need God's forgiveness. We need God's undeserved kindness. Thank God that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for sinners like us and that God will save us if we turn from our sins and trust Jesus. We need that, that gospel every single day. And that's why we confess our sins together. So I think it would be fitting for us to conclude by praying together. This church is a group of God's people who have covenanted together to follow King Jesus. So I'm going to lead us as we as a group corporately confess our sins and then we'll be done. Our Father, we approach you in the name of Jesus the Messiah. We praise you that you are great and awesome. There's no one like you, God. You are the supreme creator, the supreme king. We praise you for your covenant loyalty and love. You're faithful. You always keep your word. We praise you for your righteousness. Everything you are and do is right. And we praise you for your mercy and forgiveness. Lord, you said, you promised that if we confess our sins... You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Lord, forgive us for failing to do what you've commanded us to do. Forgive us for doing what you commanded us not to do. Forgive us for not doing justice. Forgive us for not loving kindness 
and walking humbly with you. Forgive us for not loving you with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. Forgive us for not loving our neighbor as ourselves. Forgive us for not doing good to everyone as we have opportunity. Forgive us for not setting our minds on things that are above. Forgive us for not walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have called us. Forgive us for not welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us. Forgive us for not bridling our tongues. Forgive us for not visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. Forgive us for not keeping ourselves unstained from the world. Forgive us for our sinful anger, our sinful anxiety, our bitterness, covetousness, which is idolatry, impatience, joylessness, judgmentalism, laziness, lust, misplaced shame, pride, selfishness, sinful speech, worldliness. We plead for your mercy, O God. Our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. Please be merciful to us for your sake, for your reputation among the earth, among all the peoples on the earth, and for the reputation among the angels who are watching. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.